Hi, and welcome to the Chainsaw Carving Podcast. In this episode, I get to interview Dan Cordell from Dan Cordell Sculpture and Wood Carving. And Dan is over in the UK. So let's go ahead and bring him on. Hi, Dan. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Molly. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, this is fun. This is good to have you on. Yeah, um, yeah it certainly is. So the first question I have for you is, and, and I ask this to almost everybody because chainsaw carving is such an interesting thing to be in. Um, how did you get started chainsaw carving? What's your what's your story? Wow. Um, I guess my chainsaw carving uh, started before my chainsaw carving, if you know what I mean. Like most people, I guess. We started off in, in other art forms that led us there. So um, I guess going way back to childhood I was always interested in sculpture and three-dimensional crafts and all sorts of just making and inventing and all sorts of things so um, and one of the things I remember doing really young age probably I don't know about eight nine something I was carving lumps of chalk out of the garden I lived in a part of the country where we had large you know kind of grapefruit sized sometimes lumps of chalk in the garden and they would be soft when the ground's wet and you could just carve them with like pretty any much anything you got your hands on so like a screwdriver or a, a dart or I think, I think those were like my two main tools actually um I didn't have any proper tools but you didn't really need them so um and I still have some of those pieces which is really cool so yeah I was carving carving chalk and then teenage years um probably a bit of an unusual teenager where I used to ask for bits of wood for Christmas and <laughs> um, yeah unusual stuff like that and yeah just started off carving like any bit of wood I could get my hands on with some really rubbish chisels and you know just pretty crude stuff but I was showing a lot of interest and by the time I was doing um, art in school at sort of 16 17 I was you know bunking off lessons like maths that I didn't enjoy and I'd be going off to hang out in the woodworking department on my own and trying to, you know, bribe the technician to lend me the chisels that were locked away and, and <laughs> yeah, managed to get away with it. So yeah, I guess, I guess he thought it was better. I was there rather than, um, you know, sort of getting up to no good somewhere out in town, but um, yeah. And then I, I went on to, to, um, to art college in the UK here. We do a, like a foundation year so it's um it's basically a year after your high school um when I'm 18 and you go and do um you study art but it's really broad so you study pretty much every kind of discipline within a year um and sort of specialize towards the end um so that you can build up some experience and a, a little bit of a portfolio to then get yourself onto a university course um and it was at that time I think when I was 18 that I um, first picked up a saw. Um, actually, I should go back to when I was about 16. I saw other people chainsaw carving, and I was just, you know, really amazed by it. Um, and I guess with the sort of arrogance of youth, I just thought, yeah, I can do that. Never picked up a saw in my life, but yeah, know, like my parents didn't even own a saw or anything, so I, it was completely new to me. And I just saw it happening, and I thought, yep, I can do that. And this was big stuff. This was at an event uh, back in, ooh, I guess, must have been around the mid-90s when I saw this. And it was an event in the UK, which was the biggest and coolest at the time, which was called Sculptry. And the competitors, or not competitors because it wasn't a competition, but the uh, the carvers had nine days to, to carve something. And it was, you know, really big wood. So it was really impressive to see that as a teenager and I went on to art college thinking that's you know something I'd like to explore so I've started carving with chisels first and angle grinders and I you know was trying to put round logs through the bandsaw and just you know risking life and limb and eventually <laughs> I decided that I needed to uh to convince the college that I should use a chainsaw which was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done um because they really weren't keen on the idea of health and safety wise so but I managed to do it I you know did the two days training at a local agricultural college um, which I 
very much recommend doing um, for anyone to, to get that kind of basic training behind you, how to use the saw safely, because then it really opens you up to learning how to feel, you know, really comfortable with it, like a pencil in your hand, and you can just sketch with it. So, it, you, you know, you, you learn to respect the saw. And anyway, so, yeah, college was when I first started carving really basic stuff. Um, and yeah like most of us i guess we, we we never really taught how to carve with a saw it's you're just kind of left left on your own device and you watch other people and i mean back in those days there wasn't like youtube videos to follow and books and things it was just um and i should say i had a really inspirational tutor that came in for one day a week a lady called jennifer ulrich who um really backed me and she did some carving herself with a chainsaw um so I was yeah really inspired by her and she just totally encouraged me and and yeah and just went on from there really that's cool and it's it's neat that you got them at the university to be able to let you use a chainsaw I um I taught some seniors in high school here how to chainsaw carve and I know that the chainsaw is a dangerous tool and we have to respect it but I was always like we have table saws and welders and you know like we have all these other dangerous tools yeah. that we use safely in school but the chainsaw has like a different reputation <laughs> yeah yeah it does and it's it's not really fair to be honest I mean it is you know it is a potentially nasty tool but like anything like you say it can it can um you know it can be used in a in a safe enough way and and yes we don't use it in the way it's designed to be used of sort of fell trees and cut firewood but I think so much has come on now with carving bars, you know, reducing that kickback zone. And, mm -hmm. and, and I, I think, you know, in art, inst in, um, art institutions, they're just not used to dealing with that tool and, and being able to sort of critically look whether a student is using that properly or not. So it's a little bit outside of their comfort zone and right. it's understandable. Um, and and also there's that whole sort of stigma attached to the saw, I suppose. So they're not necessarily wanting to to encourage it. I mean, by the time I got onto my three year degree course after that foundation course, I had another struggle to try and get that institution to help uh, me, you know, or to encourage me to use the saw and you know find me space in the yard and all that sort of thing. So you know there was there was a lot of um, there's a lot of resistance there. Um, as a tool but also as a f way of making art I suppose it was considered to be um, something less right um, which yeah I've a lot encountered of us, that here a lot of us can't get our head round but <laughs> um, yeah yeah I was actually I was invited to do like a demonstration carving here at a university and you know I was excited about it and I like had visions of what it was going to be like and when I got there they had me like out back behind the art department in this like dumpster yard area and it was like almost closed in and I I was like no one's even gonna see me back here like I could have wow. stayed home <laughs> yeah oh it's a yeah. bummer and and was that for a large audience or just you know, well, there was a, there was like thousands of people at the college for the, this event yeah, that was going on, but I bet I only had 20 people come back and see me because they put me back because I was so dangerous. And I'm like, <laughs> I've yeah. got a tent and netting and it's going to be fine. Like, don't hide yeah. me. <laughs> How many years do I have to do this and maintain all my fingers and toes before you, you know, <laughs> realize right. that it can't be that dangerous, surely? Yeah. Yeah. So I was just going to, and this was, maybe you kind of answered this already, but um, studying art at the university, how has that impacted your chainsaw carving one way or the other? Yeah, it's a, it's a really difficult question because because um, I've only been to university. I haven't not been to university. And I suppose, I suppose initially, um, like I was saying, I came up against resistance. I did only a couple of probably like, two maybe carvings at university in the first term before I realized that you know this is something I this is something I've already kind of got to grips with a little bit okay I wasn't good at it but I really should spend my time learning 
different materials, different skills that they're teaching me with facilities that I don't otherwise have. So um, I was interested in wood and I wanted to carve, but I just realized, yeah, I, I guess, which was the right thing to do was that, you know, let's learn to weld and let's learn to cast bronze and, you know, use clay and whatever to, and, and really take all that course in. So, um, so that's what I did really. And, and I left chainsaw carving pretty much alone for, for the three years that I was there um, and started full time about a year after I left. Um, but I guess, you know, now looking back, the things that that really benefited me from that degree course and was probably the most was the most benefit was probably life drawing. We did a lot of life drawing um, until the point where you, you know, you could almost like close your eyes and do it. I mean, it was it was crazy right. amount, you know, into the evenings. It was a very um you know it's a very practical course so we had like literally one or two hours lectures a week and the rest of the time was all studio practice and sometimes you know into like eight nine o'clock in the evening so it, you know they managed to squeeze in a lot of life drawings we had two full-time life models a man and a woman and we were just taught how to to look and look and look and and i think that's you know the really important thing that i've learned is is to just not assume so much, you know, the, the eye and the brain together tell wonderful lies and they assume things and, and you kind of have to, you have to go through that training, I think to, well, maybe you don't have to, but it helps to go through that to, to realize that, you know, unless you measure things and really look and really study things, you, you're going to get it wrong. You, you're just going to assume something's how it is. Um, and the other thing that was really important to me, I felt, was the sort of, um, so we would do a project um, and then we would have a, a group tutorial on that project. And, you know, the other students on your course, which is about 20 of us, we were, you know, asked to sort of critically analyse your work and, and the tutors would join in and, you know, you'd have to, explain yourself and and that was really really useful to have that really critical approach of what you were doing you know really get it picked apart um and it was it was hard sometimes you know when you put everything into a piece and then it was just torn apart but it it taught you to yeah it taught you that you you know you need to do that yourself you can't you can't just let others be critical of your work because most of the time they're not most of the time people are just going to say oh that's really nice right you know, which is completely worthless to you as an artist someone says it's nice it's like the worst thing you can say right yep. <laughs> it just doesn't say anything it's like what can I do with that you know so the worst thing to do is ask your friends and family who love you to critique your work because they'll just mm -hmm. say nice things and the best thing you know the, th the, the things that were most valuable valuable to me was people criticizing my work from a from a well-meaning and well-educated viewpoint and you know not just to put you down but to really give you know give you some well thought out feedback which is so important I've always treasured that throughout the years of carving when people have come up to me and said oh you know I really love your piece but you know what's going on with this bit or you know you haven't got that curve quite right if you stand from this angle and you know that that should be like this and and yeah, sometimes it's hard to take if you're in a bad mood and you've had a bad day and whatever. But I've always looked back and thought that's so valuable, you know. Um, and sometimes I probably can be too critical of my own work. So maybe that's a slight <laughs> disadvantage that I've picked up. But uh, in general, I think that's really valuable. I was really lucky as well when I was at university. I had I did really well in the first year. Um, yeah put in loads of effort and then I got invited to study in the states um, for three months in the first term and second year so I went to Virginia Commonwealth University and studied there which was completely different environment from our university um, really really top tutors um, professors that we were working with um, probably internationally renowned sculptors I imagine now 
and um, really, really, really first class facilities as well, because obviously students pay a lot of money to go to a university like that. And um, I guess all that money trickles into the workshops and you end up with a kind of industrial quality induction foundry that's like vast and, you know, you end up playing with machines that you've you can only dream of so that was a really awesome experience that I treasure for yeah all my days that's cool and that's interesting just to have the perspective of going to you know different schools in different parts of the world like that yeah yeah it was quite a it's quite a culture shock when you go to the U.S. for us. <laughs> you know, yeah. you, you always feel like you know the U.S. and and because you see it on the movies, and then you go there and you're like, wow, this is really different from Europe. Um, yeah, one of the things that struck me was talking about how saws were dangerous. We had several workshop accidents where students would, um, yeah, do crazy things. You know, like cutting glass on a bandsaw with flip flops on, and you know, just like <laughs> yeah, just the list goes on and on and and so health and safety just didn't really wasn't even a thing over there it was crazy it's just yeah everyone for themselves you know I know and I feel like Um, we're I feel like we're getting a little bit better but I know when I've gone overseas and and they've asked me like for my chainsaw certificate or something I'm like what do you what do you mean we don't have certificates you just go to you just go to the store and buy a chainsaw and you're good (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, I mean you can here to an extent, but um, yeah, you know you won't be able to get into any shows and things like that, I suppose. So yeah, generally it's expected uh, yeah. that you do a bit of basic training, which which I yeah, which is really really helpful. You know, I recommend everyone to just do some over here. I think it's a two day course still, but it's just teaching you like all the safety features on a saw, how to you know take a chain and bar off, how to sharpen your saw, how to like you know check everything's working properly I mean not fully take it apart but you just generally get to know the saw how it works you know when it's safe and what needs replacing when and that stuff and then like doing some basic cross cutting just you know kneeling down on the floor or whatever and just cutting logs in half and you know where to put your fuel can and how to you know do everything safe and that just I always recommend that to people when they come to me and say, I want to get into this because it just gave me so much more confidence. You know, it was a tool that I'd never used before and, and yeah, it's potentially dangerous. So just to have that behind you and it saves you a lot of money, you know, you can sharpen your own chain, you can change your own spark plug or whatever you need to do. It saves you heaps of time and money as well in the long run. Right. And that, that especially be good if you don't have people in your family to teach you like if you know if yeah. you're if your family is yeah. in, into chainsaws but a lot of people don't have that and they're looking for someone to, yeah. to show them the rope yeah I guess so yeah I mean I, I grew up with just my mum so there wasn't you know that kind of uh, father figure who had the uh, chainsaw in the garage or the wood store or whatever so yeah yeah that's it's really important um so I saw that you've done stone carving uh, how is that similar or different from chainsaw carving? Um, well, it's a bit of both. Like, yeah, so when I left university, I got really lucky and I started stone carving just like three, I think maybe three or four days a week for six months for a, a guy that was an ex-student on the course and went on to, to do some really nice stone carving locally. So I worked for him and... Um, I hadn't actually carved stone on my course, although it was part of my course. They covered that um, material whilst I was in the States, so I missed out on it. And, you know, I went to, to learn, I went to work with him and learn sort of, well, I had to learn the job on the run kind of thing. We were producing commissions, big public art commissions, you know, sometimes smaller garden ones, but it was pretty intense. And I think... Um, I think I picked it up pretty quick because I'm good with all different tools and you know the kind of practical side of things so it was it was a it was a fairly familiar process in that it's a reductive method right so you're reducing material rather than adding it like with clay mm-hmm. so the similarity there is is um, is good well it was good for me um, but you are reducing the 
the material in a quite a different way than you are with chainsaws. Chainsaws are pretty unique in the way that you can really bore into the material and hollow things out and cut, you know, holes and and with stone it's a bit more like carving wood with chisels. So you're kind of, you know, really taking away the edges and the outside. Um, you you can cut slots. You can cut in, you know, with a um, a nine inch or a twelve inch angle grinders and but um, you know it's not the same as being able to bore with a narrow bar like with a, a chainsaw so you, you kind of end up with you know quite chunky robust forms I guess and depending on what stone you're carving is also going to affect you know if you, sometimes we carved really hard granite and it was just bone shakingly hard and you know, you get to the point where the resistance of the material wins and you just, yeah, oh, yeah, that's, you know, that's enough. <laughs> um, and it's quite a coarse stone, so you can't get fine details. Whereas if you're carving, say, a limestone, you can, you know, you can get some really, really fine detail in there, maybe not as fine as wood, but, you know, some pretty awesome stuff. And, and, um, and you know, sandstone also, but yeah, so that, you haven't got the grain like you've got in the wood, but obviously some rock is sedimentary, so you have a sort of a grain or layers to it. So, you, you know, you can be aware of things like that. But I, I I did it for six months and I got the hang of it pretty quick. And I think by the end of that time, I felt like I'd done enough. I didn't really bond with it as a material. It's cold mm -hmm. and hard and unforgiving and... You know, especially working in the winter outside and polishing stone with water it was just like it didn't matter how many clothes you put on you were cold and you know, <laughs> I, I, it just it, it was just brutal sometimes and and I think material it just I just didn't warm to it you know we all talk about how wood is tactile and we want to touch it and everything and it really is true and you, you know you kind of want to give stone a little touch but you don't really want to hug it you know like you do wood so it yeah it's it's a material I, I felt I learned quite quickly and it didn't have so much to teach me whereas wood I think a lot of us find that we can work with it for years and years and years and you just constantly keep learning more you know diff different species even different pieces of timber from the same tree can give different characteristics so it's a really really you know in-depth material to to work with and to to appreciate and obviously it's a living material and it's you know you can learn about the trees as well and add that sort of aspect to it so yeah I much prefer the wood um I also saw that sometimes money from your carvings go to help charities do you have any advice for people wanting to do something similar like how do you set all that up oh well uh yeah i don't know about advice i mean my experience has been in several forms so i've done events i mentioned sculpture which was a huge event really over the years and that it gave i, don't know, I think it's something like a quarter of a million to tree aid which is a an awesome charity that plants and and helps local people in uh, the most arid parts of Africa replant um, and and how to use the fruits from those trees and, and, and yeah, how to basically just regenerating their lives. So that charity was given 10% from all the auction sales of the pieces over the years, um, which added up to a huge amount. But um so that's one way as carvers i guess we often are giving to charity it wasn't you know it wasn't uh, my choice but i enjoyed doing that and um and it you know added an interesting aspect to the event um if we want to just give off our own backs i suppose which is what we do sometimes you've got the option of like gifting a carving to some somebody or some place which is something i've done over the years several times is you know usually through personal contact with uh, an organization or somewhere and um i had a i think the last piece was maybe um uh, a red kite carving like a bird of prey carving i gave to um 
a hospice. There we go. So, okay. yeah, it, they gave some end of life care to some people in my family and they were really awesome. They do amazing. The hospices in the UK in general are really, really awesome. And they have beautiful gardens for their residents to enjoy. So, um, yeah, so I gave them a carving for there and, and, and that was really good, you know, with, with, uh, yeah. And then I suppose there's the option to sell a carving either in an event and give the proceeds to a charity of your choosing. I mean, it always feels, you know, better to me in a way to give to a charity that's close to your heart. Um, so I've, you know, decided to sell just off my own back, like, or give the proceeds from, from an auction piece, at an event to, uh, to charities. And, my advice with that would just be do your research because one year I did give to a charity which didn't turn out to be quite as legit as um, I'd hoped. Right. <laughs> some in... of them, some of them look would... really good on the surface, and then when you check them out, you're like, "Oh, that's not yeah. what you said you were." Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I don't want to go into too much detail on that, but right. um, but it was yeah, didn't turn out to be a good experience that one um and then of course you can always like offer to to offer to do a demonstration for a charity event um you know and all of these things is to me it's like you know 99 percent just just helping people out and making yourself feel good right um Mm -hmm. there's always something in return it's not like you know every altruistic act is is beneficial to you as a as a human so it's you know it's giving but it's receiving at the same time and and obviously you can help that help to promote your yourself or your business through social media and and you know um using that to to show what you're doing for a charity or whatever so um you know it really is something worth doing and it doesn't really cost us very much because our materials are generally pretty cheap you know it's not like we're trying to invest in a bronze and giving that away or something. It's like we're just taking a piece of wood and spending a few hours and, you know, making something that can make a difference to someone else. So, um, yeah, and it, and yeah, like I say, it just, it helps me because I think, I feel a lot of the time we're making work, um, you know, that's, that's communicating our thoughts and our feelings it's self-expression of our ego right so to be able to to balance that is to to give something to somebody else and that feels feels like it keeps me in balance a bit more I suppose Um, that's good advice I love you know I love making art and it's it's part of who I am but I'm always aware of how egotistical it is um so yeah it brings joy to other people but it's essentially about you so you need to try and kind of balance that out well that's really good advice um another thing i was going to ask so i i've been involved with this sculpture walk board here in minnesota and with public art installations it's there's so many things you have to consider like when the public's going to be interacting with art i've seen Mm. that you've done you know a lot of public art installation is do you have any advice for things that you need to consider like when the public's going to be interacting with something yeah sure yeah so I have done uh, countless probably in the hundreds of public installation pieces and and I like to install myself as much as I can but um, some artists don't like to install so I guess there's two elements to this. There's the sculpture itself, how suitable, you know, what considerations um, you need to take into account for it to be in a public place. And then there's the installation itself. So um, I guess starting with the sculpture, I'm often asked to, by clients, and I'm fully aware of this myself, but they still ask you, can you be mindful of finger traps, rain catchment, climbability, um and fire risk i suppose so and how robust you know and make it robust so finger traps obviously is like how it sounds is just try to avoid 
very narrow deep spaces where kids could get their fingers into and then maybe you know their brother pushes them or they fall or they whatever and it just snaps that you know breaks their fingers right so I try not to to create areas like that um rain catchment that just becomes like second nature I think over the years when you make outdoor sculpture just to try and make everything drain you know so that when the rain falls on it it doesn't pool and puddle in areas so Mm -hmm. you know just just be mindful of that um and quite often clients want you to um make sure that it can't be climbed which is probably the hardest one because I mean I used to do a lot of rock climbing when I was younger and I found I could pretty much climb anything I was gonna say (laughs) I think you could climb anything (laughs) yeah yeah and and you know we used to climb all sorts of public buildings and all sorts of things which didn't look like they were climbable so a sculpture with lots of knobbly bits is definitely climbable but (laughs) you just I don't know I, I guess I guess the easiest things to do is to leave the first sort of foot or 18 inches above the ground without any obvious shelf to put your foot on because that's probably the the bit that younger kids are going to start off climbing it like you're never going to stop teenagers climbing it but if you can stop a two or three or four year old from climbing it when his parents are just turning their back and then they fall over and you know so yeah it can kind of be done a bit um and then you got to consider the upkeep of it like you know are you doing anything that's going to require a lot of work for somebody in the future which generally doesn't get done you know you tell them to oil it every year or whatever but to check things and 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 it doesn't get done so just always be mindful that you're installing it and it could be sat there for 10 15 years or whatever and not even touched so um fire you know potentially pieces can be set on fire so you know that might be the choice of material you type of wood you use um i like to use things like oak because um it's really hard to catch catch on fire it just seems to want to self-extinguish all the time Uh um but yeah in some cases like if you're putting pieces into a woodland or somewhere then you know more so than a town center um, and then sort of make sure that it's really robust and and find out from the client whether it's going to be sort of high traffic or a low traffic piece, like how much contact is it going to have? If it's going to have a lot of people rubbing and contacting in with it, then, you you know, you want to use a harder wood like oak rather than a soft wood because it's going to withstand all that treatment mm-hmm. from people. And, um, and then there's the installation side of it, I suppose, like, like I was saying, I do a lot of that myself because I found over the years that it doesn't matter how well you instruct others to do it. They don't quite do it as well as I think I can. (laughs) Right. You know, they don't quite understand the material or, you know, they don't necessarily have the experience. So, um, sometimes I will, uh, have it done for me, but a lot of the times smaller pieces or, you know, sort of, um, places that are less crucial or, or pieces that are less um, critical or you know pieces that are more stable like if you're installing a horizontal one ton log on the floor you know that someone can't push it over um, so you know maybe start off with pieces like that and build some experience but I, I, I developed my own system over the years of how to fix and secure pieces that um, which clients generally really like. Um, I like to have invisible fixings so that people can't see how to tamper with it. So, you know, like not having exposed screws and bolts that people can see, oh, okay, that's a 17 mil socket and I can just undo that and steal this or I can just mess sure. with it for fun. So to hide your fixings is really good and to... Um, I like to use minimal concrete and ground disturbance, especially if you're in a woodland, say, so digging holes by hand and digging around roots or, you know, just just being prepared to move something to a slightly different spot because there's some major tree roots in the way and that sort of thing. So just being mindful of the environment you're in and and the amount of concrete and waste. And, yeah, I always use stainless steel rods because they won't corrode and, 
you know, just things like that, just really selling to the client, you know, that, that you can do it confidently with top quality materials, with minimal damage to the environment, and it's not going to be tampered with. And yeah, I guess the downside is if you want to move it to a different site, then you're going to need to put some serious effort in because, <laughs> you know, it's fixed. But but most people will appreciate that and, um, and, and let them know that, you know, this will need to be decommissioned at some point because sometimes they don't think of that. And, you know, just remind them that you'll need an annual inspection to make sure that it's secure and, you know, everything's uh, safe and, and, and allow for eventual decommissioning of a piece um, and, you know, removal of it. So, yeah, that's some, some things to think about. Oh yeah, that's all, that's all good. Cause I know maybe, I don't know. I think about this a lot because when I started out earlier, I was doing mostly small pieces, but I find the longer that I carve, I'm doing more public installation and there's so many more things to consider than I realized early on. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I guess it can be a bit overwhelming to begin with, but you get used to it and, um, you know, I've built up a, system of way of doing things i have a trailer with a crane that i built and i can you know i can pretty much install like huge stuff on my own um i often hire someone in but i can you know do a lot with a crane and a trailer and you know a wheelbarrow and a spade and you know pretty basic stuff and Mm -hmm. and and yeah make sure you've got the insurance as well in case anything goes wrong or you you know you reverse into somebody's sign or tree or whatever and you know so make sure that's kind of in place and you've got insurance to cover you for um any eventualities really and then on site just um fence yourself off as well that's really important because the public will just walk right up to you and you'll be operating a crane or you'll be like just running an angle grinder or something and someone will be tapping you on the shoulder and they're walking their dog and they're like, Oh, did you make this? It's amazing. And you're like, yeah, thanks very much. Could you, um, <laughs> leave me alone? Yeah. So that there's amazing how many times that could happen, but yeah. So as soon as I get to site, you know, I'll pull up and I'll put the hazard lights on and, and what have you, and just fence yourself off, you know, don't, yeah. don't bother with a bit of rope or tape because people are just duck under that, but just put up a, put up i don't know what you call it but you know like the plastic mesh it's about oh, a meter and then it's, high. What do we call it snow fence <laughs> yeah so you just put the metal stakes in and you just string that up and it stops dogs and little kids and everything so it's well worth spending the time doing because you just get a peaceful the rest right. of the day and and the other thing that i really enjoy about installing is you know i'm usually grubby and covered in mud and i look like someone has been hired just to install it rather than the artist themselves and you'll get a dog walker come up to you and they're like oh this is a waste of money isn't it look what the council are getting you to put in hey (laughs) it's it's usually quite amusing you explain to them yeah this is actually my work and um, (laughs) yeah thanks for your feedback and they kind of (laughs) back away (laughs) yeah it's like the feedback that you were getting in college, right? Or at the university? Yeah, sometimes <laughs> ruder. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not, not quite as constructive, but yeah. Right. Yeah, most of the time, it's all good. People love what we do. Yeah. So the next thing I was going to ask you is um, where and how, I'm sure this changes over time, but where and how do you find inspiration for your work? Oh, yeah, that's hard. I... I suppose I let it find me. I don't try too hard. I don't find that works for me very well just to sort of, you know, seek inspiration, if you like, through, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's looking through Pinterest or looking at what other carvers are doing. Um, I've never really felt like doing that or found that that's a good approach for me. Um, I think if you're starting off, it's it's good to look at what other carvers are doing. But I don't, yeah, it's not good to try and emulate what people are doing um, ideas-wise, so maybe techniques-wise, but I I tend to just, um, yeah, I tend to just let it find me and just give yourself plenty of time to do the things that you enjoy doing, you know, whether that's, 
like for me I've always enjoyed traveling and I've always enjoyed photography and I've enjoyed wildlife so you know it's it's going to places seeing places I've been very fortunate to be able to take time off in my artist career and just spend a year traveling or working with different cultures in in Asia and you know I sailed across the South Pacific um you know stopping at amazing places and meeting like it's just so yeah it's just so awesome the the things you see and the people you meet the ways of life and it all I'd all just let that sort of soak in and and then when when it wants to it will find its way back out again that's what I find and of course I record things with a camera as well if I see something that looks really amazing like a temple or you know a piece of wildlife somewhere or whatever but um I don't often go back to those photographs and use them um I guess because I'm a visual thinker anyway it's you know that you go through the process of studying it whilst you're taking the picture it's kind of in your head um, right um and you know if I'm if I'm carving a something very specific whether it's a figure or an animal then obviously I'll you know use the internet or whatever and I'll study that specific animal or that specific figure and and use that to to guide me with that piece but if I'm making something that's a bit more freer and looser or more abstract then I really don't like to look at things I just like to follow my own thoughts and you know, let all those things that I've absorbed over the years through through life just kind of come back out again. And I think that's, I guess that make to me, I, that seems to what makes work quite unique to you rather than, you know, work that's like somebody else's because it's, it really is, has come from you. It's just, you know, just trickled out of you rather than being forced by looking at somebody else's work or, does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes sense. That's good advice too. And sometimes that's the, um, I don't, I don't know how to say it, but it's hard to allow that time or allow it to come out if you're forcing other things, but that's good advice. Yeah. Yeah. I've never, I mean, I never particularly worked that hard. So (laughs) I've never been like one of those carvers that's just wedded to the saw and wants to carve 24 seven and, you know, addicted to the two stroke smoke. I've, I've always, I've always just wanted to do other things as well. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then, so that that's come quite easy to me just to take a year off or a few months off and do something else and come back to carving. And that's probably good for, for letting, you know, like what you were talking about, like letting your own ideas flow through you, that taking the yeah. time off. Yeah. And being aware of, I think to me as an artist, I'm not wedded to carving. Okay. I've, built built up a a business that's based around large-scale green wood carving that's mostly done with a chainsaw if you want to describe it like that but that's not all that's not just me and that's not all I can do as an artist my you know your ideas can come from anywhere and they can come and they can form images in your head in any medium you know you might not be able to yet master those mediums or even try them but you know, just being open to the fact that everything can inspire you in some way and and it, and you might want to express that in another way than chainsaw carving. You might want to draw that. You might want to paint it. You might want to just make a maquette out of clay for that piece and explore it in that way. Or you might want to... Um, I've just started lino printing for the first time since I was at school, which I'm really enjoying playing with that really different art form you know where you've got like very uh, what do you call it very high contrast black and white you know very graphic two-dimensional obviously I mean you go through a carving process with the lino but the print itself is just two-dimensional so you know it's not really nice and healthy to explore different art forms different way of expressing the same ideas or you know things inspiration that comes to you and this maybe goes along with the inspiration thing but I remember the first time I think it was the first time I saw your work 
I think you were in Australia and you did one of the stacked oh, yeah. building carvings. Yeah. And I was trying to find a picture of it before we talked, but I think the buildings were maybe on top of a tree. Yeah, that's right. Yep. That piece was, yeah, the Australian Open and it was, I think I called it Tree of Life. It was kind of took the, so I dismantled the log. Um, okay put it back together which was most of the time I spent you know at the competition was doing that and people were looking at me like what the hell is he doing <laughs> he's just cutting his wood into numerous different pieces and then gluing them all back together again but it was well thought out and planned and I enjoyed doing that piece it was um, basically a tree with some with a kind of horizontal city perched on top of the canopy if you can imagine yeah. that viewers listeners I mean um, so yeah, it's been a, a series of work that I've called dwellings for about 15 years, maybe, that I've worked on. And I've kind of dipped in for a while and left it for a while. And and I've recently done quite a lot in that series over the last three years. But, um, yeah, so that they, that I call them dwellings because, you know, they, they are houses or, or places where people could live, but they're of a vast array of styles from shanty towns to castles and everything in between yeah i don't know what else to say about that i as just, far as I just remember when i saw it i thought it was so incredible and it was so unique and it was one of the coolest pieces i'd seen and and that's when i was like who is this guy i love this oh, carving okay. and then i and then i went and saw that you'd made more and it was kind of a series so that's just yeah. why i mentioned that it was yeah. pretty cool yeah they've, they've I guess they're generally like a vertical log and they're carved um, in that way. Whereas at the competition, I kind of tried something a bit more adventurous. And you know, there's definitely elements to it that, that I didn't find work too well. But, you know, that's that's what happens in, in a very limited time frame and competitions. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, no, it's, it's very unique piece, I guess. It's probably a bit too unique because... You know, it never sold, but <laughs> um, it, it, a bit of a Marmite piece, I suppose. But um, some people love it, some hate it. But um, yeah, it was definitely part of the fascination of my series of dwellings. And that was probably more of a, a sort of statement piece where, you know, I was saying that, you know, humanity is resting upon the branches of nature, I suppose. Um which I've revisited a few times, but um, sometimes my pieces don't have too much concept behind them, but I just love the way that they feel and look. And and what I really love about carving these buildings is that I, f- I feel like I carve them in a completely different way from other things. If I'm asked to carve a fox or a bear or whatever, I tend to, like most of us, start roughing out the whole shape, right? Mm-hmm. To get the proportions and the, the, you know, make sure you can fit everything in that log um, and then start to refine it all over with details and um, what have you. But with my dwelling series, what I really love about them is that um, I tend to start from the top without little plan. I have a rough idea of how it might look but I start at the top and I literally put the first rooftop in and then I come down and put the walls in for that um, part of the building and then I find another rooftop and I explore that and how it fits in with the first building and another rooftop and I just walk around the log I just constantly walking around the log cutting small pieces off and there's no big blocking out it's just fairly small saw from the word go and I'm just exploring these different buildings and how they all tessellate and fit together. And it's just really, really fun process. I suggest other people try it for fun, but it's to me, it's more like it's more free and it's more like a sketch than a than a, a finished idea in your head, which you're just trying to fix in wood. You know, it's it's. Um, yeah it's it feels it feels really free and you just work your way down until you feel you've got to the right point and then create some sort of base or structure to hold it all up in most cases sometimes they're balanced on a boat hull or sometimes they're balanced on a sphere that could represent the world and 
so they have sort of different overall aesthetics but um yeah and i've cr recently i've created quite a few indoor pieces that are wall mounted so they're more tend to be more horizontal cityscapes rather than like towering pieces so that's something i'm exploring i'm supposed to have a, a really cool indoor exhibition this summer in a local city cathedral but unfortunately with the corona it's been cancelled or postponed till next year so oh sure yeah so the work i haven't put out there yet i've kind of kept it secret but yeah i've created some pretty nice and i've started using mixed media on those as well so i started using bits of steel in there and yeah so it's kind of developing a little bit and it evolves you know over time which is really cool that does sound like a fun process the way you described it yeah no it is it's and it's yeah it's one of those processes you just don't I didn't see it coming it was just obvious how I was to start do, carving one of these pieces and um and it you know the more I thought about it I was like this is really different from the way I carve other things like I wouldn't carve a complete bare head and then work down the log and try and find where his arms and you know it, you, you don't work like that generally so um and it didn't make sense to do a general all over rough out for these pieces and then try and take more off to find the rooftops and things. It just, yeah, it. I don't tend to overthink it. It just happens. Cool. And then the last question that I have for you, do you have any ideas or suggestions for people like regarding health and safety when they're carving? I know we talked about it a little bit earlier. Yeah. Yeah, um, I've always been like fairly interested in that side of things and, you know, personally, but I don't want to see friends get hurt either, right? I mean, it's not in anyone's interest and I mean, generally, I think what the way we work is fairly safe and there's just a few things, you know, to be mindful of. Um, and and I, I think the most obvious things like, you know, wearing chainsaw chaps or um you know, making sure your chain break works and all that sort of stuff is fairly obvious, I guess, to most people that are starting out. Um, but the thing, you know, I've been carving for, uh, I started 23 years ago. And the thing that I've, that initially I ignored was just my, was my body and how soaring affects my body, I suppose. Um, I've suffered from back pain since I was about 18. So, I had that kind of forced upon me and I've always had to make sure that I look after my back and um, you know some carvers are lucky I've met carvers in their 40s and 50s and so I've never had back pain for a day in my whole life and you're like wow you're lucky you know because most of us right. if we've been doing this long as most of us have got bits falling off and bits that have broken and stuck back <laughs> together and you know it's just sort of part of the game but I it's I think if you're new you know, my advice is aimed at people coming into this. I don't need to lecture people that have been doing this for years, but people that are coming into this, just be like really mindful of how we're using your bodies on a day-to-day -day basis. And, you know, you might think that you've got an active outdoor healthy job, but when you actually look at what we're doing, we're quite stationary in what we do and we're quite repetitive in our movements and we're quite unbalanced by the nature of the saw, having the left hand further forward than the right hand a lot of us have left shoulder injuries because of that rather than right shoulder injuries a lot of us have tennis elbow in the uh, or tendonitis of some sort in the uh, right forearm and elbow because of the trigger being pulled down all the time so you know what the body does is like well, I've been told anyway that by physiotherapists and, and um, osteopaths is that you know a muscle becomes your, your body will alter a muscle to become more like a tendon if you're just doing the same thing with it over and over again it goes okay I don't need to be strong and flexible and elastic I can just be like more rigid like a tendon or um, so that's why a lot of us get problems in in our forearms because our muscles shortening just for gripping so you know so much time of our day is gripping gripping clenching our fists um, that those muscles will shorten and harden and then as we go to use our our hands 
normally I suppose it's going to want to pull pull that tendon away from the bone and cause the pain so it's just been really mindful of what we're doing um, I've always done plenty of yoga stretches try and stop you know like I'm a real advocate for just stopping after a tank of fuel clearing up your off cuts so you don't trip over them and clearing away some sawdust or doing something else that will put your body in different positions um, straighten your back up you know pull your shoulders back and you know just and and try and quicken your heart rate if you've been fairly stationary then your heart rate's not going to really increase so if you just have a quick run around or do something else that raises your heart rate it's going to help blood pump around your body and get blood back into areas where the vibrations have pushed it out you know so it's really important i've got a um, a bar that i hang from as well which i find super useful so i'll stop and i'll just hang from my hands on this bar just dead straight like almost you know sort of like i'm dying or something <laughs> um but it yeah. just helps to pull my back out again and 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 you know stretch my shoulders and everything so yeah um that would be my advice just look after yourself because it's likely that you're going to get addicted to this occupation like most of us and you'll want to do it for the rest of your life and and you can't if you abuse yourself you know you, you might just get one chance and and a lot of us are finding out that yeah sores are pretty rough on us and and uh, yeah I was going to say one thing I've been promoting I, I, I must say I didn't invent it but I've been using it for about 15 years which is hanging my sores so in a works but you know in a fixed workspace that's really easy you can you have a roof over you and you can like hang your saws from there and and you can also use tripods and sometimes I use my crane even so there's various ways to use it on a stump job as well or, or anywhere you know I've used them in competitions um, but just hanging your saw from a device that's commonly known as a tool balancer or a spring balancer it's basically like a weight compensation system so you're using a steel cable that's fixed to a, a device that has like a really long sort of wound clock type spring in it and and that um that cable moves up and down like really if you buy a good quality one you know they they last for years they're industrial quality they have a silky smooth movement to them and you can just like tie a piece of paracord around your front handle of your saw use a little carabiner and just clip on that steel cable onto your saw or you know any of your saws and they just move up and down with total ease um which enables you to use all your strength or all the strength you want to use on controlling it rather than just supporting its weight so i find that super useful for longevity you know you can work all day and just really not feel fatigued um it's a bit of a cheat, I think. <laughs> no one's ever seen it like that, I suppose. But you know, you you use one of those in a competition, you you know, you got a fair advantage, I think. Um, I know. I actually saw. I'd never heard of what you're talking about. Yeah. But there was a carver out on the west coast, and he was he actually had an injury before a competition, right. and wasn't going to be able to be in the competition at all, but used one of those had one of those rigged up and I was like what in the world is that but yeah. it saved him from having to like withdraw from the competition because he couldn't hold the saw himself there you go yeah, yeah. and you still got to hold it and obviously you've it's it's nice to have like a little bit of weight like half a kilo you know a few pounds so that if you let go it falls rather than wants to run up towards your face <laughs> right uh, it feel it feels more natural that way but safer as well um but yeah, it, it, it's one of those ways of working that just feels a bit odd to begin with. It feels like you're that the cable's in your way, but it's really not. It's just, you know, it takes a few weeks to get used to it. And once you do get used to it, you're like, wow, why did I ever carve without one of these? You know, like I, they cost like a hundred bucks and they just, it's just like the best investment you'll ever make. And yeah, I've had people say, oh, why do you need that? You're not man enough or whatever. It's like, yeah whatever you know <laughs> like carry on the way you are <laughs> like every one of us at some point will get an injury from what we do i'm sure so 
yeah, just try and prevent it from the word go rather than try and deal with it when it happens. Right. Um, cool. It's my advice. Yeah, that's all good advice. Well, um, I guess, I, well, I should ask you, do you have, do you have anything else that I didn't ask you about that you want to share? Otherwise that was my last question. Um, I guess advice wise, um, I'm always willing to help carvers out. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's always something that's, that's made sense to me is to try and help other carvers and to try and promote what we do in general. Cause like most of us don't know, or most, most of the public still don't know this stuff exists, especially over here, probably more so in the States, but so, you know, helping each other out and just promoting it's a really good way forward. I think for all of us to get more work and, you know, healthy friendships and everything. And I think my other advice would be to, to look, you know, I think that's like the most important thing, which is my art training gave me, was just to look a lot and to cut less, you know, be economical with your cuts. Um, but don't be economical when looking at what you're doing or studying what you're, you know, need to study. So, and step back from your log, you know, we, we spend a lot of time like a foot away from our work or, you know, pretty close anyway, um, right. which gives you a really skewed perspective. Uh, I've seen a lot of figures carved with really short legs. And part of that is because people start at the top and work down and run out of wood for their legs. But it's partly because the perspective from not stepping back far enough. So, you know, sure. obviously if you're really close to something that the legs are, are going to look, um, you're going to have that sort of foreshortening. So mm. it just, just step back, you know, have a cup of tea. Uh, that's what we're great at in the UK, just stopping having a cup of tea and, <laughs> you <laughs> yep. know, sit back, try and look at it from around the middle rather than looking down on it, you know, try and, if it's a low piece, obviously squat down. If it's a taller, like a life-size standing figure, get far enough back that you can, really get a good perspective on it and and if something's not going right then maybe come back tomorrow check it with fresh eyes um and seek good critical feedback if you can if you've got other people around that know what they're doing like ask them you know like put them at ease and say look you can criticize this i'm not gonna <laughs> you know we're not gonna fall out just what's wrong with it you know and that's really super useful especially at events you know you can get that sort of support you know learn who who you can trust to to give you good advice um right and i not, not your the reassuring <laughs> is important like you said because usually when you first ask they tell you it looks great and you're like no i want i want the yeah. not recorded version <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah. yeah and measure things you know like if you're um I'm, i don't do a huge amount of figures unlike say simon o'rourke but um I've done a few. I've done enough to to kind of know what I'm doing, and I think some of them have worked pretty well. I mean, that's for you to judge. But um, the way I've approached it is always to be compared to other things I'm carving. I measure a lot, so I'm always using the head proportions. Um, if you're not familiar with that, then just kind of Google that and get an idea of. Um, what that's all about but it's basically using a head length from the chin to the top of the head and using that length to sort of rep, you know duplicate that down the body and find you know one head length down from the chin you've got the nipples and another head length down you've got the, the the navel and and so forth you know going down the body it gives you a good idea of how proportioned things could be and should be and and you can you know there's no set like uh there's no it's not set in stone these things it's you know generally something between seven and eight for an adult and less for a child but you know if you want to make a figure look you know if you study a little bit about classic sculptures um whether it's you know michelangelo or sort of classic greek stuff and things you you'll figure out like what they were doing it wasn't it was pretty knowledgeable, you know, as far as proportions and things. Sometimes they look a bit off, but, you know, if um, you look at Michelangelo's David, you can see that the head is relatively big, but, you know, even though the sculpture's like f over four metres tall, I think, you can tell that it's a young, sort of small adult, um, which is what, they were, tr you know, Michelangelo was trying to portray in David in that the head length is relatively long to the, to the length of the body 
so it's kind of using all those things is, is super important and just keep measuring you know there's i've lost count of how many pretty good chainsaw carvings i've seen that have been let down by short legs so it's not something you want to do um it's not a mistake that's easily rectified and and it's not very forgiving so right you know, if, you, if you're going to make the legs uh the wrong length make them too long <laughs> don't make them too short but yep. measure you know just keep measuring it's hard to measure on logs we we know that the this you know the sphere the uh not spherical the cylindrical shape of our material causes a lot of problems it's, you know if we start off with a square block then it makes life easier but we start off with an usually quite an odd shaped cylinder which is hard to measure things on side to yeah. side but we can measure up and down you know if we stood that log vertically and want to carve a figure we can carve we can sorry mark with crayon or paint where halfway is you know we can me measure our head lengths i tend to use a stick of like tuba one and just mark off all my head lengths on that stick and then like every time i cut a piece off and lose those marks on the log you can put your stick next to the log and quickly just strike another mark to show where the where the navel should be or where the chin should be etc so that's a super useful process mm -hmm. or, you know way to work it's just to uh, yeah quick and easy way to keep measuring keep measuring keep measuring because before you know it your eyes will lie to you and you'll end like the the, the belt inevitably ends up you know six inches lower than where it should be or whatever it's just, it just yeah. always happens it just creeps every time you you know unless you remeasure and mark you just like bits will creep and before you know it you've ended up with a weird shaped dwarf <laughs> yep. yeah probably probably useful in some ways but thanks for giving me this opportunity as well to um speak about what i do i think it's always a useful exercise to talk about what we do and how we do it and where we've come from. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Chainsaw Carving Podcast. Make sure that you go and check out our other episodes. And also, if you could like, share, or rate the podcast, that will help us out so that other chainsaw carvers can find this podcast. We really want to get it out there so that we can learn from the experiences of each other.